Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wise fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And Father, we just collectively stand here asking, Lord, that by your spirit, you would now, as we continue to worship in giving our attention to the word of God and the voice of your spirit speaking through it to us, that you would write your will onto the fleshly tablet of our hearts this morning. Lord, we believe that you are a God who speaks, and we know that there are things that we as your children and your sons and daughters need to hear. So, Lord, would you speak through what you've spoken in the word of God in this present hour by your Spirit's ministry, and we ask this together as your family in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's good once in a while to evaluate, do a little inventory, and perhaps part of that sometimes is to ask ourselves if we at the current time are a healthy person. Now, I think there are lots of different ways that health pertains to our lives, but the bottom line is establishing and seeking to maintain our physical health certainly involves some personal responsibility. If we are going to obtain physical health and maintain physical health, certainly are things that we must do. There are lifestyle habits that are attached to that. Diet certainly is attached to that exercise, maybe even getting some help on occasion. And personal physical health is important not only to us individually, but it also becomes something, honestly, that's to a degree important to the family that we are connected to because personal physical health makes your life better, but it also has a direct influence upon those that you spend your life together with. Now, with that being said, the same thing is true regarding spiritual health and obtaining spiritual health and maintaining our spiritual health. We have to take as well in spiritual health personal responsibility to do things to obtain spiritual health as well as to maintain spiritual health. And it also is important both for us as an individual believer and spiritual health is also important to the rest of the family of God that we do life together with. And in our text this morning, in verses 1 through 9 here, I believe the Spirit of God is giving some great instructions about how to stay healthy spiritually, how to maintain our spiritual health as believers and as the church. If you look back with me in verse 1, as Paul begins this next section, he tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed, following the idea is, deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So notice he opens with a very strong caution, and I believe the strong caution here is that it's essential to not only listen to, but also to respond to what the Spirit of God is saying to us, both as an individual believer as well as the family of God. The Spirit of God, because he is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the person of the Holy Spirit is God, he knows all things, even that which is coming ahead. 
and the Holy Spirit's ministry is to function, Jesus said, as a helper, a helper who comes alongside, a helper who even dwells within us, and he lovingly performs his ministry as the helper in the believer as well as among the church collectively to communicate truth to us in order to keep us healthy spiritually. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit's ministry in John 16, when he, that is the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, the idea is among the Trinity, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So notice, Jesus clearly told us of the ministry of the Spirit of God that he would be one who's speaking to us, the things of God, on behalf of God. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus speaks of how he reminds us of things in John's gospel. The Holy Spirit advises and directs us individually as well as directing the church collectively. It's in Acts chapter 13 where there the Spirit of God speaks and says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them to. And so they laid hands on them, they prayed on over them, and it says, and then they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God directs us, he guides us, he is the one who teaches us, and he even warns and cautions us, and is even willing to, if need be, correct us through conviction for our own spiritual benefit. And here, Paul says in verse 1, that the Spirit was impressing a very strong message of importance that he now is recording for us. He says there in verse 1, look at it. He says, the Spirit expressly says. The idea there of expressly is the Spirit clearly is saying this with strong emphasis. When we talk about you know, the express message of something, or you know, that, that's the idea there. It's very clear and it's with very strong emphasis, I'm expressly telling you this, he says, the Spirit has a strong message that's clear he wants to impress upon God's people. And what was it that in the verse 1, latter times, some will depart from the faith? Now, when he talks about the faith, there is clearly a definite article in the Greek language there. He's not talking about having faith or believing. He's talking about the faith, definite article, the faith. And whenever we see these terms, the faith with a definite article in the New Testament, it's used to refer to the original and authentic biblical Christianity that was handed down to us originally from Christ and through the apostles in the early church original, authentic, biblical Christianity. Jude says it this way, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you, listen, to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So when he's talking about the faith, he's talking about the Christian faith the original, authentic, biblical gospel message, beliefs that are based in sound New Testament doctrine that we have as the church now, the basis of truth, the gospel of Christ. And he says here that during the latter times, which is a phrase used in the New Testament to speak of really from the time of Christ's coming all the way to the time of Christ's second coming, not just alone the last days. Paul's going to write in 2 Timothy chapter 3 there, and he's going to say, know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Here he just says, in the latter times. And that term latter times is used occasionally to refer to anything from that time period of when Jesus came all the way through to the time of the last days in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he's saying the Spirit of God is clearly warning and indicating of a very, we might say, hard reality. And it is a hard reality to see, and that is, he says there in verse 1, that some will, it's a definite thing, some will depart from the faith. That word depart that's used there speaks to withdraw from, to desert, or to revolt against. It also at times is translated to remove oneself from something or to refrain 
and no longer follow something. And he says here, this is what will happen. There will be some who make a choice of deliberate rejection of biblical truth, that they will consciously decide to turn away from the Christian faith, to move away, to refrain from following and no longer follow sound doctrine. They will depart from the Bible as the standard of truth. Some will decide, he says, sadly, to turn from trusting in the Lord Jesus and the word of God to follow clearly what he describes here, deception. And notice from verse one here with me, that deception is promoted by forces of the devil actively at work among humanity. He describes there in verse one, what's causing this deception. He says, deceiving spirits of demons being at work, that is spreading lies amongst humanity at large, as well as false doctrines among the church community. The Spirit of God, as well as the Word of God, tell us very clearly there both how and why some will depart from the faith. He says, verse 1, why? Because they are giving heed, and the idea of giving heed means not just listening to, when you heed someone's advice, that means you act upon it. You don't just listen to it. You actually choose to say, you know what? I'm going to act upon that. I'm going to follow that. And this is the idea. They have turned away from the faith because they now have made a decision to heed listening and following deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons as that which would guide their life instead of God's truth. And he describes here two things, deceiving spirits, which speak of false spirits, spreading lies, spirits that rebelled against God when Satan himself did. And, and these false spirits are deceiving by bringing moral and spiritual lies to misguide humanity. And so these deceiving spirits are at work, evil ways, actively, purposely working in the world, promoting ideas presenting beliefs and giving people thinking patterns to try and deceive humanity into wrong thinking that is completely wrong morally, it is completely wrong spiritually, and the whole goal of these deceiving spirits is to misguide humanity to ruin lives and to destroy souls of human beings. He mentions also there, certainly we should not miss in verse 1, also there are, he says, going on doctrines of demons. Now, you should underline that in your Bible because that tells us there that teachings at times will come about that are ideas that are not just of human origin. That'd be scary and bad enough. But there are doctrines and ideas that are taught and promoted that are ideas, the Bible says, of demonic origin. That is the devil himself, who is a deceiver and a liar and a destroyer of souls, promotes errant spiritual beliefs that people will subscribe to. Remember when we went through 2 Corinthians, Paul there talked about how the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light, and he said, don't be ignorant of this, ignorant of this. And then he said, so is it a surprise that his ministers represent themselves as ministers of righteousness and ministers of light. Now, that's a pretty scary concept. The devil has ministers. And he makes it very deceptive and hard to discern at times that they're actually doing his work instead of the work of God itself. So the Bible says the devil himself has his own ministers at work, no doubt mingled among this thing we call the, the church at large, and at times, the devil himself, through deceiving spirits, is promoting doctrines, teachings, spiritual beliefs, and ideas that are actually being directed by demons. Now, that is very important to remember this morning. And let me say, with emphasis, not every spiritual idea, not every spiritual revelation, not every spiritual doctrine or, or practice is of God. And so we have to be very careful. You know, there are popular, you know, musical groups and there are popular churches and you see some of the things that go on in their congregations, the way they behave or ideas they're presenting. Listen, it doesn't mean that all of that is of God. 
The Bible says there are deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons connected to people departing from the authentic Christian faith, leading people into other things, you know, you know, barking like dogs and falling on the ground. I mean, just some of the bizarre things that go on at times that are done under the banner in the name of the Holy Spirit where none of that is evidenced in the Word of God. And, and we need to be careful that we don't look at whether it's, you know, you know hyper-spiritual activity or whether it's ideas of, well, well, I mean, most of what that church, church teaches is accurate, but they kind of have this idea they hold. Look, some of those ideas may be subtly doctrines of demons that are being introduced to misguide people. Certainly, this is how many pseudo-Christian cults gather followings and mislead people. And so he says here, some, sadly will and have turned from the truth, the authentic Christian faith, to follow deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And he says, this will be a characterizing mark of the latter days. There will be an escalation of this happening amongst us, people doing what we refer to as abandoning or apostasy. That is an abandoning or a turning away of biblical Christianity turning away from trust and reliance in the Lord Jesus Christ, departing and not following any longer the word of God as the standard for spiritual truth. And, and let me just say in connection to that, if I can make an application here, this is why I said at the beginning, we must, it is essential. We must learn above all else, not just to know that's going on and be discerning. We have to learn how to listen to and respond to the Spirit of God. Because Jesus said he's the Spirit of what? Truth. And if you're following the Spirit of truth, more than likely you're not going to be misguided by deceiving spirits of error. If you're following the truth, that is going to be your safeguard. Jesus said he will guide you into all truth, which means he will also keep us from gravitating into error. Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3, as he gave messages to the seven different churches there, one phrase he repeated, and interesting, the thing he said repeatedly to every single congregation was this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. That's what mattered to Jesus most. Each church got its own kind of separate little degree of instructions or reproof or commendations for what they did good. But the one thing Jesus told every church is listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Have an ear open and have a heart that is willing to let the Spirit guide you and give heed to the Spirit. And I tell you, folks, to the degree that we do that as Christians— and to the degree that we do that as a church, we will stay spiritually healthy. And to the degree that we don't do that, or we neglect listening to and giving heed to the Holy Spirit of truth, we will cause ourselves to become more and more unhealthy spiritually, and we'll put ourselves more at risk. So a real key to maintaining spiritual health is listening to what the Spirit is clearly saying. And here he gives us a very clear caution to cause our hearts to be aware of such realities. Paul tells us a little more about these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, which were no doubt being promoted by unhealthy men as instruments of the devil's work. He says, verse 2, these unhealthy men being guided by deceiving spirits are speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot Iron. So notice he mentions they are speaking lies, that is deliberately by evil agenda, because that's what false teachers do for self-gain. And if you're a note taker, you want to write in there 2 Peter chapter 2, because there you get a whole chapter in the New Testament to help identify a false teacher who's speaking lies, whether deliberately or because they're just so deceived, they're just spreading wrong ideas that they themselves have subscribed to. He also mentions there of these unhealthy human instruments being used by these deceiving spirits as their, their pawns and their mouthpieces. He says not only they're speaking lies, but he, knows, he also characterizes them as those who are in hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That is, they're not genuine. They're fake. They're individuals who are living a double standard. Outwardly, again, remember Jesus talked about those who were wolves in what? 
sheep's clothing. So outwardly, they have this image and they can say the right things. They can quote Bible verses. They, they can do all the things that give the appearance and representation that they're you know, healthy and sound, but their life is a double standard. And in their personal life or their private life, all that's happening is they're putting on a show outwardly for their own self-gain or their own unhealthy personal agendas, but inwardly, they are living a completely different life. And they're just hiding their wrongdoing in, in, in private and what they're doing personally, and their heart is characterized by hypocrisy. And how does that happen? I think he tells us the problem in the end of verse 2. He says, having their own conscience, look what he says, seared with a hot iron. The idea is they burnt and damaged their own conscience, and so now their conscience has basically lost function. And that is a scary and unhealthy place to be. What happens is through their persistence in wrongdoing and repeatedly rejecting what the Holy Spirit was saying to them when they first started doing those wrong things. Stop doing that. Why did you compromise there? Why did you draw glory and attention to yourself there? Why did you cheat there? Why did you take a little money there? Why did you flirt with that lady there? And, and why did you... You twisted the truth there, and little by little, the Holy Spirit speaking, speaking, speaking to the conscience, but what happens is they persist in wrongdoing, and they repeatedly reject what the Holy Spirit says. They begin to damage the sensitivity of the function of their conscience. Again, we've talked about before, the conscience is something God-given in every person, and when it's working correctly in a healthy way, it operates like a moral compass we've talked about, right? So like an inward moral compass, our conscience helps us detect if we're on course and we're going the right direction or if we veered off course and maybe we're now going in the wrong direction. And our conscience helps us to kind of course correct. If we listen to it, it's where God speaks to us by his spirit. But, 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 if as a human being, a person begins to reject God's voice, communicating their conscience, and they start abusing their conscience and abusing their conscience and abusing their conscience. The Bible says it begins to harden first and it begins to become an evil, unhealthy conscience. And ultimately, he speaks here of what's most dangerous. A person can actually end up with a seared conscience. The term that's used there to sear is like taking a hot iron and searing something. It's where we get our English word today to cauterize, right? If you ever had a health procedure done, you have a, you know, a bleeder or a procedure, and they, and they cauterize. That is, they, they actually burn tissue, and it basically destroys the tissue, and it, where, it, where it causes the tissue, in a sense, to kind of to then be shut off, and that's the idea here. Their conscience, because it was rejected again and again, and again and again, they end up searing their own sensitivity in their conscience to where basically it loses feeling. It loses capacity to function the way it's supposed to. And then sadly, the condition such a person arrives to is then they can do what's wrong. They can sin. They can do evil things. They can speak lies. They can live in hypocrisy. And they can hurt people's lives. Listen, and they have no feeling over it anymore at all. They've lost a sense of remorse because their conscience has become seared to where they can do all of those things and they've come to a condition where they no longer even sense remorse about their sin or their lying or their destroying of people's lives. And boy, let me just say, that is a scary place to be. That is a scary place to be. And, and God reminds us here, if we want to stay healthy, one of the things that's certainly important, don't go down that path of ignoring your conscience. Don't begin to brush aside and dismiss and abuse your conscience and damage your conscience. It's something God's given to help us stay healthy. It's a great safeguard like an internal moral compass. Never transgress your conscience. Listen, it's where God's communicating to us so often within Paul then describes a sample of some of this false teaching in verses 3 to 5 here that was being kind of promoted by these unhealthy people. He says, verse 3, they were, look, forbidding people to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For every creature of God is good, and nothing's to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So notice what they were doing. They were teaching, and not just teaching, but it says they're commanding that people needed to refrain from participating in certain human experiences that stem from natural God-given desires, eating foods, finding a marital partner. And the reason for this, of course, is they were conveying these ideas to people and enforcing these upon people, saying this is necessary if you really want to be holy. If you want to arrive at deeper spirituality, if you want to have deeper relationship with God, to be more devoted from, with God, then you have to refrain from these things. You can't participate in such things. Now listen, Paul comes against this by the spirit of truth because he's saying, look, this directly violates what the word of God says. These are God-given things in Scripture that are normal and acceptable by God's design. He says one of the things that they were doing that was errant, verse 3, is they were forbidding people to marry. In other words, they were telling people, if you truly want to be holy, if you want to be deeply spiritual, if you want to be fully devoted to God, then you have to forego a marriage relationship. You have to commit to a life of singleness and celibacy, and you are not allowed to enter into a marriage relationship and participate in marital expression of sexual you know, experience. Just, you, that's, you can't do that. If you truly want to attain holiness, if you want to experience greater devotion to God, the way to do that is you're forbidden to marry. You must live in singleness your entire life. That is what brings a person to deep spirituality or holiness, they were saying errantly and saying this is essential for greater dedication to God. But yet Paul says, wait a minute, that violates the word of God. Because Paul says here, they're forbidding people to marry. Look, he says, verse three, these are things which God created himself to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Again, Genesis chapter two, before sin ever even entered into humanity, right? Before sin ever polluted mankind in perfect paradise, it was there in Genesis 2 that God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Hello. <laughs> God said that in perfect paradise. I will make a helper comparable to him. A man shall be joined to his wife, God said there, and they shall become one flesh both were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So again, God created the marriage relationship. God instituted it in a purposeful way as a good, wholesome thing for mankind. He says there very clearly, it's not good for man to live alone. God said the exact opposite. God said it's not good for a man or woman to live in loneliness and singleness. Again, God's natural design, the norm, we might say, the norm for most all of humanity, unless they have a true spiritual gifting and calling from God, and I believe it's a very rare thing, but the norm for most of mankind is that they would enter into a lifelong partnership with someone of the opposite sex and they would have a lifelong marital relationship and partnership and enjoy all the help and the benefits that that brings into our lives through that complementary partner. Again, the God himself said the man and his wife became one flesh, and they were naked, and God said that wasn't a shame. It was, it was totally beautiful and pure. Again, notice, the Bible distinguishes marriage by saying in the marriage relationship, two lives become one flesh. Now, think about it. God's you know, pretty wise, he's pretty talented. He could have described marriage in lots of other more romantic sounding comments. The two shall become one heart. They shall become one spirit. But God referred to marriage saying biblical marriage is one flesh. It's the consummation of the sexual expression between a man and his wife. God says that's what distinguishes marriage from every other human relationship, Right? That's what separates marriage from parent-child relationships, brother-sister relationships. It's that one thing. It's, it's the one flesh relationship. And God said this was a sacred thing that was instituted 
1 Corinthians 7 says to avoid sexual sin, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So again, this is why the Holy Spirit of truth through Paul's heart saying, look, this great disregard for what God created, marriage, to say that people are forbidden to marry and you're holding people back from a good, wholesome thing. He says, you're lying to people. And not only are you lying to people, he's saying you're setting people up for a more unhealthy life because for most people, that's the norm for them, and they are going to struggle unnecessarily. And look, can I just say very briefly this morning, for those who have forbidden certain people to marry in sectors of the church, do you not recognize that's caused a lot of problems? It's caused a lot of problems for people who have a natural God-given sexual desire to struggle, and then in lack of self-control at times, they have perversely exercised that sexual desire in wrong ways because they were being forbidden to marriage. So God says that, that, is, that is a completely errant idea. And then he also says they were commanding some other for spiritual reasons to do what? He says, commanding them to abstain from certain foods which God had created to be received as well as thanksgiving. In other words, enforcing dietary codes, dietary regulations, you can't eat these things, or on these days, you're not allowed to eat this particular type of food. And again, implementing these ideas that if you abstain from certain foods and dietary regulations, that will bring you into holiness. That will bring you into deeper spirituality. Again, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 9 refute this idea. There it tells us in Genesis 1 where God said, see, I've given you every herb of field which yields seed on the face of the earth, Every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be food. And then on the other side of the flood in Genesis 9, thank goodness for me at least, maybe not for you, God said this, And the fear of you and dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, every bird of the air and all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea, that is all creatures. They are given into your hand and every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things even as the green herbs. So again, this is why Paul says here in verse 4, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. The idea is gratefulness of God as a provider. Jesus addressed this in Mark chapter 7 as well. You can read it there for yourself as they were instituting their traditions. And Jesus said, what are you doing? Don't you realize it's not what goes into a person that defiles them? What goes into their body goes through their digestive tract and is eliminated, Jesus said. Jesus said, you know, what the issue is is what's going on inside of people's hearts, not what's going into their stomachs and their intestinal tracts. And they were you know, elevating this idea that somehow certain ways of eating were more spiritual or did something to add or enhance someone's spiritual life. And Paul's saying here, look, God in his goodness and for personal enjoyment and for physical nourishment has supplied various forms of food. He supplied the herbs and the plants and all those things. Genesis 1 describes and on the other side of the flood, God also gave the opportunity for any creature of, of flesh to be partaken of as well. Again, so scripture teaches that a person has freedom to eat plant-based foods or to eat the flesh of animals. That there is that freedom there. Nothing, he says, is to be refused if we thankfully acknowledge God as the provider of that food that we're receiving on this earth. And he says the reason why, verse 5, for it is sanctified, which means it's set apart as a holy and wholesome thing, by what? By the word of God, that is by knowing what God's word says, not some person's traditional ideas of what spirituality is or what makes you more holy if you follow the Daniel diet or, you know, I mean, all these ideas come around. Well, this is, this is true spirituality. You got to follow the Daniel diet. Follow the Daniel diet. More meat for me. <laughs> right on. I'm okay with that. But it doesn't add to your spirituality, he's saying. It, it may enhance your health, and well, that's fine if you want to do that, he says. But through the word of God, knowing its truth, and through prayer, that is asking God to guide our personal dietary choices, and then saying, thank you, God, for being a provider. Thank you for this food and how it nourishes me on this earth. Again, physical food we eat contributes nothing to our spiritual health. Physical food on the earth is to nourish and sustain these physical earthly bodies, which guess what they are, the Bible says? Tents. 
They're temporary dwelling places. It's what keeps us alive on this earth. Ultimately, it's a disposable body, and no matter how you eat, you're still going to have to dispose of it. You can't maintain perpetual health. And so to say that somehow this contributes to spirituality is a very wrong idea. If a person, for health reasons or preference, chooses to follow a certain dietary you know, way of eating, that's fine. They have the freedom to do that. If it's their preference, if it's for health purposes, but it is very wrong to think somehow it makes a person more holy or adds something to our spiritual life. And certainly the wrongest thing to do is to kind of imply that to others because what you're telling a person is that by this human regulation, you can add holiness or bring spirituality to yourself. And look, Paul just mentions two things here, forbidding of marriage and restriction of, of certain foods. But he says, these are human regulations and we're not made right with God by observing human regulations. We're made right by, with God by following what the word of God says and living according to biblical standards. That's what keeps us healthy with God. That's what helps us to stay in right relationship with God. The way to stay healthy spiritually, look, live according to the word of God. That's your diet. <laughs> live according to the word of God. Be in marriage relationship with the son of God. That's how you stay healthy spiritually. I would say this morning by way of application of these things, find a biblical basis for the ideas for how you live. And I would say as well, if you can't, don't, please, don't make up rules that are not in the Bible for yourself and make yourself condemned and, and, and don't make up those rules for others as well. Sadly, some are more committed to their regulations and human rules than they are things like the word of God and prayer. Live in the grace of Christ. Enjoy the righteousness of Jesus and the, the freedom to, again, experience the goodness of God on this earth and let God's word be what keeps you healthy as your standard. He says to Timothy, verse 6, Timothy, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Now, apparently, watch what Paul's doing here. Apparently, from the Bible's standard there, there is such a thing as a good minister, and apparently that must mean there are also those who can be a bad minister of Jesus Christ, or we might say a healthy minister and those who can be an unhealthy minister of Jesus. And here Paul advises young Timothy of the importance of seeking to be a good minister. You see it there in verse 6, a good minister of Jesus Christ. That is someone who's healthy himself so he can help impart spiritual health to others that he is assisting spiritually. And he mentions, I think, some things here we might say that help one to be a good healthy minister and serve the Lord. First thing he says there in verse six is if you instruct the brethren, that is your spiritual family, in these things. What things? The things he just spoke about, certainly in the prior verses, but I think the entirety of the letter. Timothy, if you instruct the believers in these things, you will be a good, healthy minister. So notice, we can take note that a good, healthy minister is one who instructs others, we might say, with God's truth from the word of God as a basis. A good minister primarily is not an entertainer. He's not a clerical jester and joke teller in the pulpit. He's not someone who's a social planner. You know, he's not the recreation director. A good minister, he says, is to be one who is instructing the brethren, teaching, guiding, directing people in relationship with God, helping them to come to know God, helping them to walk in fellowship with God, to know God's will, to follow Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 for me has always been sort of a characterizing mark of the ministry I've always wanted to be a part of and lead there in Colossians 1.28. He says, Jesus, we preach, warning every man, teaching every man that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. I like that. He says, this is what we do. We, we proclaim him. We proclaim Jesus. We don't proclaim our church. We don't proclaim, we proclaim Jesus. 
We tell people about Jesus, and then we teach people about Jesus, and we warn people of what would pull them away from Jesus. And he says our whole goal is to help people become mature Christians. That's our goal, he says, to instruct in such a way. And you know what? The Bible says we're all capable ministers of the new covenant, and what a great thing for us to seek to try and be good, healthy ministers to the people God puts among us, our families, and where does that begin? instruct people spiritually, help guide people spiritually. That is one of the most wonderful and healthy things you can do. Notice also a good, healthy ministry says starts with being a good, healthy believer. Paul says the end of verse six, he says, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. So notice Timothy, he says, Timothy, you can't just be doing academic research and then writing good speeches to talk to people on Sunday morning. That's not going to work. Timothy, some may do that, but that's not going to make you a good minister. He says in verse 6 here, Timothy, you can't just write good spiritual speeches from your research. You need to be feeding on God's word yourself. And he says you also need to be carefully following God's word yourself. That's the starting point. Timothy needed to be feeding his own soul. He says nourished in the words of faith and good doctrine. That word nourish speaks of exactly what we would envision, just like nourishment physically. Timothy needed to be feeding and nourishing his own soul as a Christian. He needed to be dietarily enjoying the, the nourishment and the value of God's word as a Christian man first and foremost, reading his Bible for his own Christian walk, spending time with the Lord and letting God speak to him about his own Christian life, letting the word produce faith in him so that he was trusting the Lord how to walk with Jesus and live according to the will of God, and not just feeding on the word, but he clearly emphasizes also they're following the word because he says this teaching which you have noticed, he says, carefully followed. That is, Timothy needed to be living out the word of God in his own personal practice and his own personal obedience. He couldn't just be reading the Bible and teaching the Bible and not living it out and following it himself. He's saying, Timothy, that's for people who've entered into, remember he said above, lying and living in hypocrisy. Timothy, I'm proud of you, son, he says, because you are carefully following the word of God. And so a good and healthy minister is one who is a personal and healthy Christian first and foremost. That's the key being a healthy Christian believer, someone feeding on God's word for their own spiritual nourishment, someone who's following God's word and how they live and operate in their own personal life and walk, then becomes someone who is a good source and foundation to help other people, to help them come into spiritual health as well because they're speaking from their own experience. Look, this morning, can I say, if you want to help others, and I hope you all do, I hope you all want, the Bible says that my role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We all do ministry. I pray every Sunday morning that lots of ministry, those who are in there hear me pray, everyone, Lord, I pray lots of ministry would happen all over this property, from the parking lot to the hallways to the different rooms. And if we want to help one another and help people spiritually, here's the starting point, become a healthy Christian yourself first and foremost. The reality is this, you and I will never be able to take another person any further spiritually than you've already gone yourself. You're a father, you're a dad, you're a spiritual leader in your home. You need to be a step ahead of your family spiritually or you can't lead them because you can never take them further than you've gone. You have to be healthy yourself spiritually so from that basis you can help others. And Paul tells Timothy to a degree how to do that. Look what he says, verse 7, but reject profane and old wise fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. So Paul's instructing Timothy regarding making personal investment as a man and a minister by giving attention to what produces spiritual health and develops spiritual health. He tells Timothy what to avoid there in verse 7. He says, reject profane or unholy and old wives' fables. What are old wives' fables? But, you know, they're, they're superstitions. 
They're mystical stories that are interesting. They've existed for the ages. They're reports of things that have happened that, wow, that's an interesting, could I experience that? And he says, Timothy, look, for this kind of stuff when it floats around, most of that stuff, he says, it's just not reliable. It's just stuff that it's interesting sounding, but it's not really important in regards to what it means to truly live out a healthy Christian life. So he's saying, Timothy, don't get caught up in, set aside, reject this stuff that's just kind of these interesting, oh, this is going on over here, and we got to try this. And he said, Timothy, don't get caught up in that. Instead, he says, here's what I want you to attend to. I want you to attend to this. Be practical. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Timothy, focus on that. Don't focus on the sensational, the, the greatest and latest. Timothy, exercise yourself toward personal godliness. What's godliness? Becoming more like God, reflecting God's nature and how we live and how we act. And notice Paul recognizes that does not come automatically. It must be pursued. That's why he says, don't miss the language. Look at it in verse 7. You got to exercise yourself toward obtaining and experiencing godliness. That word exercise in the Greek Gymnasio is where we get our English word gymnasium. What's the gymnasium? The gymnasium is the place, the gym is where training happens, right? It's where exercise goes on. So it speaks of how personal godliness is obtained and experienced through the disciplines of certain spiritual exercises. That is, it doesn't come automatically. Just like an athlete to be victorious and to become healthy physically, they have to exercise and put time in the gym. He's saying the same is true with spiritual health. You have to put some time in, as it were, into God's gym. You need to be willing to exercise yourself in spiritual ways. Again, if I could ask a simple but very realistic question this morning, does any person lose weight and develop muscle by becoming lazy and hoping it will happen? I'm hoping by the ladies' tea next week to drop 27 pounds and fit into that dress that I wanted to wear? Is that going mean, to hope for? No, right? I'm hoping to, you know, get some bigger chest muscles so that my wife will think I'm a little bit more, uh, is that going to, no. If you're going to lose weight to be more healthy, if you're going to try and gain muscle, if you're going to try and get into shape, become more physically fit, you can't just hope for it, right? You got you to gotta work for it. You have to actually be determined and disciplined. You got to make some sacrifices. You got to make some commitments. Well, in the same manner, God's just saying same way with spiritual health. Why do we think differently with spiritual health? Why does somehow we believe this idea that we can get saved and kind of put our spiritual life on autopilot and we're going to grow and be a really strong Christian? Or that we're going to develop and mature spiritually and that it's going to kind of just happen automatically a person has to be disciplined enough, God's saying, to put some time into the spiritual gym. Again, because you just think of the idea in your mind of exercise physically. Think of what comes to your mind, and this is the idea. Some degree of a spiritual exercise plan, which includes things. Not like bench presses and curls and squats and, and running on the trip, but things like reading and meditating on the Word of God and letting Him speak to your soul nourishing you spiritually through his word, spending time with God in prayer, learning to obey God, attending worship gatherings with the people of the Lord to be built up, serving the Lord. As a believer, there are certain things we have to learn how to ignore and set aside and give up, as well as things we have to pursue and invest in. If we want to become spiritually healthy, we have to exercise ourselves towards godliness. Now evaluate today. Are you routinely exercising yourself toward godliness in some way in your life? If not, let's get an exercise plan going. Let's establish one. Let's be realistic. Let's be practical. Let's do things with a conscious effort to get more spiritually healthy and strong to exercise yourself to greater godliness. Paul says, verse 8, here's his reasoning. For bodily exercise profits a little. That makes sense. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promised for the life that now is that which is to come. So notice, Paul's comparing the value and benefit in verse 8 of spiritual attainments and spiritual health to temporal attainments and to physical health, being spiritually healthy versus being physically healthy. Now look, 
He's not forbidding or looking down upon physical exercise. Right there in verse 8, God says bodily exercise profits a little. It does have value. It has benefit, right? Physical exercise is a metaphor he's using here because we can connect to it. We can understand it. And so physical bodily exercise, if you perform it, it does profit some. He says, but the profit of it is for this life alone, and it really, in the grand scheme, is of little value and little profit because you can have the biggest muscles or you can have the most organic body from all your perfect diet and everything you do, and still, you're going to lose the battle. Again, we can be physically healthy, nothing wrong with that, but the idea is we should have a proper priority in our perspective because we realize the trade-off is bodily exercise does profit some, but godliness, exercising yourself to godliness, he says, is profitable, notice, for all things, much grander, having promise for the life that now is and the life which is to come. So godliness has value and profit that's much more far-reaching, and I'll tell you why, because a godly individual is much more helpful and beneficial than a great athlete. Wish the American culture would realize that. A godly individual is going to bring much more value and benefit to their family, to their society, than a fantastic athlete. A godly person is better prepared to live well on the earth. They have proper values and priorities. They live in accordance with God's ways, and they're also simultaneously getting ready for heaven. So he's just exhorting us to prioritize the spiritual life and development and maintaining of our spiritual health. Particularly, it's interesting Paul uses athletics because in the ancient culture, they were fanatical about their athletics. The Greeks, the Olympics, I mean, the level of dedication these people would go through, the training, the commitment, the dietary ways they would you know, put regulations upon themselves and train and the time and the effort and the money that was funneled into those things, it was so much investment of hours and money and sacrifice and diligence and focus. And Paul's saying, in comparison, how much of the same goes into developing spiritual health? All that dedication that we put into physical health. You know, truth be told, many of us who are into exercise, many who are, you know, Christians who are also great athletes, sadly, some would not let anything keep them from their physical exercise routine. The run they got to take, being at the gym, whatever, but the same people would not think twice about not reading their Bible for a day or two or three or a week, but nothing's keeping them out of the gym, right? And God's just saying, priorities there? What's really of greater value? And athletes, again, they'll exercise, they'll push their bodies to, to limits. They will strive and strain. And God is saying, wait a minute, we push our physical bodies and athletics and physical health. And again, nothing wrong with that, but he says, shouldn't our dedication and sacrifice level and commitment level be much higher in its discipline towards spiritual health? Towards that, Shouldn't that be the top priority, he's saying? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9 and I love Jesus' statement in Matthew 6, 33. It's a life verse, and it summarizes for me. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things will be added to you. It's just a priority thing. What has greater profit? If you have to choose, choose spiritual health. May that be your highest commitment. That's why Paul says this is a faithful, reliable saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance. In other words, he's saying, just like somebody who you say, man, that guy's exercise program, that person's diet regimen, look at them. Man, I wish I had that physique. Look at how well it's working. And Paul's saying, in the same way you might adopt somebody's physical plan, he's saying, why don't you just adopt what God's word says here and watch the benefits of spiritual health. Start exercising yourself towards godliness. You know, what did Nike used to say years ago? Just do it. Right? So for spiritual health this morning, can I say for all of us, let's stop making excuses. Let's determine to get started, to make changes. There's never a good day to start a diet. There's never a good day to start exercising. There's never a good time to start reading your Bible, to start praying. We should always be doing that. Always. If we haven't been doing it, let us return to that. Because godliness has great, great profit, and God wants us to be spiritually healthy.